Welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. It is our intention to continue offering these audio recordings free of charge. However, if you would like to donate to support our cause and keeping our facility open in Nashville, you can do so via the Venmo app by sending a donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can find us online at our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org, and click the Donate tab. Here in uh, Nashville, I visit my parents, and they're actually neuroscientists. And my mom teaches at Vanderbilt, and my stepfather used to do research um, at the Kennedy Center connected to Vanderbilt. And there's been this weird coming together where the Buddhism I understand now is very interested in neuroscience, and the neuroscientists are starting to hear about Buddhist practices and the fact that they have these physiological and neurochemical uh, shifts going on. And so in reading one of these books, trying to bring these two worlds together, this one neuroscientist said that um, 95% of our behavior is actually unconscious and it's a trained habit. So when you first learn to drive, you don't have any of those trained habits and so you have to do it all consciously. You You actually have to learn something, apply it, and pay a lot of attention after a while, driving becomes second nature. And so you can do this very complicated task and daydream or text like you shouldn't or whatever you would do on top of driving because you've built these subroutines in your nervous system that know how to drive. And your animal body is amazing enough that it can handle very complex tasks. And if they're roughly similar to the tasks you've done before, you have some subroutine, you can do that activity unconsciously. And back when our evolution was developing, um, our world didn't change that much. And so there wasn't a huge unconsciousness to having habits. We were small bands of people living in familiar territory and the habits of our previous generations worked to get us through the challenges that we faced any particular day. But now the world is changing so much that we have these habits that actually don't interface well with the actual world we're living in. So now this habitual nature of how we were constructed evolutionarily is maladaptive to how complex our modern world is. And actually, it's stressful to be unconscious. It's stressful to try to go through such a complex world with raw habit. And so raw habit is constantly being challenged by the fact that the world is changing, it's very speedy. And no, uh, no animal has trying to do such a stressful thing as what humans are doing now. So one big part of what we do in Buddhist meditation is we look at these habits and we try to make them conscious. We try to see how our mind is behaving And we begin to first just sort of map out what are these raw habits of mind. The old Buddhist term is sankhara. And in Sanskrit and yoga traditions, it became samskara. And these are seen as the ruts of the mind. Your mind developed these habits, and you can be unconscious in a lot of your habitual behavior. The Buddha compared it to an ox cart that goes down the same road over and over and over and the ox cart, the oxen, by the wheels of the ox cart get so in a groove that the uh, driver can be asleep. I used to see this when I would go on alms walk when I was a monk in Burma. 
they would start the oxen walking and then they would keep sleeping and the ox would know where they were going. The wagon wheels would stay in their wagon ruts and you could go a long time and you just had to every now and then wake up and get the animals to keep walking and not stop to eat something. So the Buddha used that image to describe the unconscious mind. It's going down the same path it's always gone down. In fact, it's hard to get those wheels out of the ruts they're in. You have to get them up out of the rut to go in a new direction. So most of us spend our childhood developing habits, learning English as a habit or your primary language, and you actually had to develop that. Learning the people uh, around you, learning their names, learning how you behave in a particular culture, and then it all becomes second nature. So second nature that you don't even know you're doing it. You actually can't stop hearing the English I'm speaking. You can't get your mind out of the rut of translating all these sounds into English. That's how uh, deep these habits go. That habit happens to be a, a, a healthy habit. So there are some healthy habits and there are unhealthy habits. But either way, a rigid habit doesn't allow your mind to be as dynamic as reality is. And so a mind that's overly rigid in its habitual nature will feel the stress and friction of preferring to go into a habit and yet it confronts reality and reality is different than the habit and you feel that stress. One time I uh, went, I, I was living with housemates and I went away to teach a Buddhist retreat and I came back and I was celebrating letting go of your habits and refreshing the mind and I came back and they had reorganized the furniture of the house and I walked in the door and my mind was really awake so I saw it happen I saw they rearranged it I felt this dread of like ah I don't want to learn a new thing I don't want to have to learn how to walk around the furniture I just want it the way it was but I saw they'd actually done a really good job and it was much more beautiful how they had arranged it and so I said, Temple, adapt, adapt. I was like, I don't want to adapt. I've been working so hard. And now I have to adapt. Why won't the world just be the same? Like, why can't I figure it out and then just live in the comfort of what I've already figured out? Why do I have to keep adapting? And I had just done a whole week of training people out of their, uh, and out of their habits and liberating myself from my habits, but I went home, I wanted something that felt like an old shoe. I just wanted to go back into my habits and feel something familiar and comfortable. But immediately I saw they'd done a really good job. And so I felt this tension inside. And um, then I grew to like it the way they did it, and they wanted to rearrange it again. And I just thought, when's this going to stop? When are people going to stop rearranging the furniture so you can just know how to get through your house without having to discover something new every day. So we actually have a lot of unconscious preference to do things like we've done them before, and we find ease in that habit. And yet that habit won't align with reality. We're in too fluid and dynamic a universe to ever actually develop a habitual relationship that works out. So one thing that mindfulness does is it begins to come in and bring consciousness to the flow of your experience. And so you intend to be with your breath 
and your mind starts going down the same patterns it's always gone down. And even though that's a little bit frustrating, it actually shows you, I'm intending to, for this to happen, but I'm learning about all these pathways I've made in my mind. I'm now saying this is my value of being present, and yet my mind will do anything but be present. I'm trying to open to the fact that my body has some pain in it, but I have a patterned relationship to being worn down and frustrated and disappointed that this body has pain in it. So we start discovering these habits, and then you can begin to uh, see which of these habits actually helps me with reality and which of these habits uh, frustrate me in terms of reality. That takes some study. And so we develop mindfulness, one, just to, uh, to learn how to relax. But then from that relaxation, we learn to actually improve intimacy and intimacy within uh, fluidity. So these cars keep coming and going, and they're showing you how hearing works. No sound starts and stays. Sounds flow. Hearing is an active, fluid process. We kind of know the next sounds that will arise, but not really. Will a truck go by, a motorcycle? If you're listening, it's not really the same sound over and over. Will somebody cough or not? When will they cough? Will somebody walk in? Just the intimacy with hearing shows you all this fluidity. So that's how reality is actually happening. But then we have this unconscious comfort to want to be predictable, to want it to be a repeated experience that we can just use an old habit and be comfortable in the old habit. So that's what we end up practicing in mindfulness meditation. First, develop some calm and some presence, and then begin studying how our animal body relates to the world around it, and seeing that the world is actually much more dynamic than you could possibly ever control. So that becomes an insight, and we resist that insight because we still deep down hope that there's a final solution we can use to not be frustrated by our conventional view. So conventionally, if we had enough influence over our world, we could finally be happy from a conventional uh, approach. That what comes through my eyes and my ears, what goes through my mind, the company I keep, the food I get to eat, the health I assume I should be able to master, I should be able to play this game better year by year and have more contentment through this conventional approach. One of the Buddha's uh, insights is that there actually is no winning that game. So it doesn't matter how much power you gain over your environment, you never get anywhere near control. And so there's always frustration. And if you, all you have are conventional strategies, you'll double down on those strategies and try to uh, marshal more control over your environment in order to get happy by this uh, instinctive, conventional way. Through some control, through pleasure, through keeping pain at bay. And the Buddha's great insight was that that game is, cannot be won. And yet it's the game most people are employing unconsciously is that there's some measure of developing ourselves 
so that we can be more happy next year than this year. But if your approach is, I want it to be more pleasant, I want to be able to get more control, I want to keep pain away, then eventually you'll have to, uh, that approach will run into great frustration. So when I went to uh, practice in Burma, I went to work with this very tough Burmese teacher, and his whole approach to meditation was to push us out of our comfort and to live so beyond control and comfort that at some point you would exhaust, the, just out of raw frustration, you would exhaust the mind's desire to gain control. And <clears throat> he didn't have me seek out pain, but if something unpleasant came, he said, be mindful of it, be intimate with it. So when I ordained, I shaved my head and I put on these very thin robes because most of the time in Burma it's very hot, except I ordained in January. And the mornings are so cold you can see your breath, and so I had these very thin robes on with a shaved head, uh, no hair on my head. And I could see my breath and I felt this cold coming in. And I went to him and I said, uh, I think I made a mistake. Uh, ordaining at this time of the year. I'm not used to your weather. You know, if I waited a month, I wouldn't have to face this problem, but having a shaved head and uh, such thin robes, I'm sure I'm going to get very ill. And he said, more mindfulness is needed. <laughs> and I thought maybe the translator hadn't really gotten the gist of what I was saying. And he the interview was over, so I had a whole day to think about it, and like, how can I get the point across that um, something dangerous is happening, and I need permission from him not to have the experiences I'm having. So I went the next day, and I thought, and what I didn't know is this was an old habit of mine, was to empower other people to make decisions uh, I should be making, and if I couldn't do it that, if I couldn't get what I wanted, I would have to guilt them into giving me permission for what I wanted. So I hadn't yet exposed this as a habit of mine. It seemed valid. It seemed like I was a pitiful person who was about to catch a cold and went the next day and tried one more time, described it and sort of put more pity on the story and more suffering into the story. And, more good intentions into the story, and same thing. You need to pay a lot more attention to what's happening. And I thought, great, now I'm going to really guilt you. I'm, look how sick I'm going to get. And then you're going to say, oh my god, this guy, he got so sick. Uh, I shouldn't have asked him to pay more attention. What I should have done was taken care of him. And that's the way I used to get my power people around me to um, to change their behavior was by a type of self-sacrifice. So I hadn't exposed yet, that yet as a pattern of how I was navigating the world. And he wasn't buying it. He wasn't buying it uh, to the least degree. But it meant that I am now going to walk out. I'm going to feel all the cold. I'm going to get sick. And then he's going to realize his mistake. And then I'll get, I'll get a pass on reality. And he'll see that he should have done something different. So I walked out and I was like, but to do it, I really have to do it. So I really have to feel a cold and really get sick. That's how I'm going to make him feel guilty for what he's done. 
So I walked out and exposed my shaved head to the cold air, and I wore this thin robe and felt the cold going up my arm and into my torso. And I was like, that's where you get really sick, when you feel it entering your torso. And came up my legs, and I'd never had a shaved head exposed to cold air like that, but it got inside my ears, and they began to sting. And I grew up in New England, where we have a lot of cold, bitter winters, but I'd never been that cold. And I was like, oh, this is exactly how you get sick and felt it coming but I thought he said be more mindful so I actually have to do what he's saying and have it fail in order to get what I want so I started feeling it the cold I never felt that cold I never felt that much cold sensation and what I realized even that morning was that when I began to go more into my pity story and resist the cold, I would start to feel pre-sick. And when I would relax that and surrender to how cold it was, I started having this intuition. I don't think I'm going to get sick. Like, but that's not possible. I'm way too cold. So <clears throat> I played with this for many mornings and saw that, very frustratingly, he was right. If I actually paid attention... I could get much more cold than I'd ever been before in my life. And it was actually the resentment and the victimhood and the contraction that would start to congeal this suffering that would turn into a cold. And so in his sort of brilliant way, he pushed me out beyond my comfort and gave me a challenge that I actually could learn from. Right after I learned that, this other monk said, what are you doing? We all know how to take care of ourselves. We don't get that cold. <laughs> and so this other monk showed me how to wear a secret underrobe. And, um, <laughs> but I learned the lesson of freedom, and I learned actually how to actually take care of myself. And the same thing happened where on the almswalk, we had to walk barefoot um, when we were receiving food from donation. But they were resurfacing this road, and they put on this very fine crushed uh, granite pebbles and tar over it, and then more fine crushed. We had to walk on this barefoot. And I went and I told him how painful it was, and he said, more mindfulness is needed. The nice thing about him always saying more mindfulness is needed is that I could anticipate what he was going to say and then not wait until he told me. I was like, well, why don't I practice this? And then show him how it failed. But it never failed. There was a surprising capacity to show up for my experiences. And what I learned was I could actually have a range of experiences I had predetermined were unpleasant and predetermined were harmful. But if I could breathe with them first, many experiences actually weren't unpleasant. They were just unfamiliar and they're not what I preferred. But they were actually not harmful and they were not actually unpleasant. And if they were unpleasant or harmful, I actually had the freedom to make a choice about it, but not from a predetermined, contracted experience. And what I had experienced up to that point, and one of the problems of living in a, a country with the comfort we have access to, is you can go long periods without being uncomfortable. And it makes your familiarity with discomfort um, a less familiar experience. <laughs> so then you find that you don't have the um, 
you don't have the relationship to being uncomfortable. And you think that's going to make you happy. If you can actually postpone discomfort, you should be getting happier. And one thing I discovered when I was younger that actually turned me towards Buddhism is I would spend every summer canoeing in northern Canada. And I would go from a middle-class life with hot water, enough food, um, climate control, air conditioning in the summer, heat in the winter. And I'd go out camping for a couple of weeks, and I would sleep on the ground. There'd be more mosquitoes. I had to actually heat the water to cook the food with. Uh, it was harder uh, physically all during the day. I had to be around the same people every day. No matter who there are, there's no choosing who I was going to be around. There's no choosing the temperature of the air. If it rained, we got wet. If it was hot, we got hot. There was no air conditioning. If there were mosquitoes, you're going to be surrounded by mosquitoes. If there was no off switch to the mosquitoes. And yet by the end of that summer, I'd be happier in a strange way I couldn't put my finger on it than when I came home and met my friends who had had an ordinary middle class summer how was your summer? Oh, it was boring. Nothing really happened. It's like you had all this comfort, but it actually didn't make you happy. And I had less comfort, but I feel happier. I feel freer. I don't need this sort of narrow bandwidth of middle-class comfort and then get so familiar with it and bored with it that I don't know where to go from here to be happier. I already have climate control. I already have hot water for showers. Like, how does it get better? And I'm so bored with how things are. And I can't tolerate being pushed out of this middle-class comfort bubble. But I don't know where to go, so you must need more. You must need a better car. You must need more income. The doorknobs have to be a little shinier. You have to kind of climb up this ladder to get happier because at least that's what the, the conventional contract is. And yet, I met people who had climbed that ladder and they were not the happiest people I knew. One time, my father, being a professor, he got, to, um, he got taken on a tour uh, going up the Danube River on this incredible five-star flotilla hotel with, um, with people who had retired and they are all very wealthy to have afforded this trip and he got a plus one. So I got to go with him on this incredible trip. And they had exquisite breakfasts, exquisite lunches, and we were shown the capitals of Europe, and we didn't even have to pack a suitcase to go from one capital to the other because this barge would take us. It couldn't be a more pleasant trip. And yet most of the people on that trip were in the same level of happiness as anybody I knew. They weren't happier, but they had complete a luxury around them. So I remember sitting next to this woman and they served us salmon. And I was like, wow, we're eating salmon. And she said, yeah, but they overcooked it. I'm like, you're totally missing what comfort you have around you, what pleasure you have around you. It's meaningless to you because if your salmon's not done exactly like you want it, you're going to suffer. So her world had actually become very narrow in where she could find awe and amazement and joy, but it was very easy to upset her. It was very easy to upset the wealthy people on this barge. And that was something that the Buddha could see, having been raised in India at a time as, with a prince, as a prince where he had access to uh, 
three different palaces depending on the weather. He had access to only the people he liked around him, would spend time with him. He had lotus ponds. Mm -hmm. he, uh, he had the finest silks of India that he wore growing up. And he had an early insight that there was nowhere to go up from here and it actually wasn't that secure. No matter what the riches he had, he couldn't stave off illness himself or the people he loved. He couldn't stave off the aging process and he couldn't stave off the dying process. So luckily early on he had that insight, whereas many people get that insight much later in life, that the strategies they've been using don't actually secure much happiness and well-being. So then you start getting into this meditation form that cultivates insight. And the insight is born out of a greater intimacy with reality than we have conventionally. If you have mediocre intimacy with the world, you're building your sense of the world with mediocre attention. And that's where a lot of conventional views get born. But through mindfulness practice, we heighten our intimacy with ordinary experiences. We ask sophisticated questions. Is this lasting? Is it not lasting? Do I have to suffer because it's unpleasant? Am I really that secure because I'm having a momentary pleasant experience? And is neutral all that bad? Conventionally, those things start to get wound into us as habits. And so we don't think we can have a beautiful experience except if it's pleasant. We think neutral experiences are oppressively boring. And anything unpleasant, even a little bit, is going to be an unpleasant experience. There's no other way it could be. How many of us have uh, lost hours of sleep because there was one mosquito in our room and we were anticipating one mosquito bite? And that anticipation of that sting and that bite, we were willing to lose hours of sleep and we were willing to get into a frothy, murderous rage to kill that one mosquito, anticipating what would be ordinarily a very hard thing to feel, a mosquito bite and the itch from a mosquito. But that's our anticipation of how much what we call painful is actually going to be suffering. And we obsess about how great pleasant things are going to be, and they're great in concept, but often when we have the direct experience of what we've been obsessing about, we spend that time obsessing about the next pleasant thing. We've all, uh, maybe culturally, uh, you didn't participate in Thanksgiving if it wasn't your culture of origin. One thing I've noticed every Thanksgiving is how many hours go into making the meal and how many minutes go into eating it. And if you were to actually be pleasure hounds, if you're really hedonistic, you'd be mindful. And you'd slow down and you'd really taste it. But most people actually rush through that experience, rush through this incredible meal that you make. Most people don't know they're doing that. And if you ask people, are you doing that? Most people would say no. But with just a little bit of mindfulness meditation, you actually start watching what's really happening in your mind and you can begin to check that behavior if it's, un if it's actually unskillful. And you begin to feel, actually, I do have some behavior that's really beautiful. I, li I like listening to my friends. I like being generous with them. In fact, I'm going to more intentionally be more generous. I'm actually going to get more joy in taking care of others 
that I would ever get if I only focused just on myself. So those are not conventional truths, but if you pay a little bit more attention, and that's what this form of meditation asks us to do, is have suspend what you already know, become more intimate with the world you're actually in, and then learn from that intimacy what cultivates the greatest happiness. It may seem like it I would have been shocked when I was younger, but the more I allow my life to be unpleasant, the happier I've become. And not that I seek out pain, and not that I don't respond to it as quickly as possible, but my relationships, my intimate relationships have gotten better when I've made a lot more psychological room for their unpleasant times. Getting into a fight, making up around the fight, but there's still a bad energy. Your hormones are kind of off and you're a little bit pissed and you kind of say what you need to say, but you're going to not keep arguing. And then there's these hours afterwards where it just takes a while to get back in flow. I used to resent that. It's like, why do we have to do that? Why do relationships have to have an unpleasant side? They do have an unpleasant side. And the more I've learned how to breathe with temple. This is just the nature of relationships. They have unpleasant sides, but if you're conscious through that unpleasantness, you get more pleasure out of the relationship. So it's not that I endure bad behavior, I don't let people treat me badly, but there, even when you have two well-intended people or a collective of people, if you learn to expect that unpleasantness as a part of the ride, you actually have a more joyful ride because you learn that's a texture of being alive. And you actually have a capacity of heart to be with a range of unpleasant experiences without suffering over them. And that's one of the things that happens over time with Buddhist practice, especially from our tradition, is that unconsciously, contentment is handcuffed to pleasure. And what we do over time is we learn to have contentment whether things are pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So I've had an illness over the last 20 years, actually since I was in Burma. My body gets flushed with irritation, inflammation, um, get headaches at times. I make it worse by wishing it weren't so. And what I've learned to do is make some room for the unpleasantness of my life experience. And I find that there's some contentment in me that doesn't get scarred by the visitation of unpleasant experiences. And I know that's a direction to head. So whatever it is, trouble inside, trouble between me and my family or friends, greater trouble in the world, wishing it weren't so doesn't make it a better ride. It only adds, it compounds to the suffering. Letting the world have its unpleasantness and knowing that it's a phase, it's a part of the dynamic nature of being awake, you actually get a sweeter ride. And knowing that pleasure is not a guarantee, that pleasure visits, and most of what happens is a kind of a slightly pleasant, neutral familiarity that can dip into unpleasant. But we often don't get big, prolonged unpleasantness unless we're ruminating in our heads. And pleasure itself is pretty fleeting. If you actually are intimate with a chocolate chip cookie, it doesn't provide as much pleasure 
as your mind anticipates. But it can anticipate a lot of pleasure. So you actually get more pleasure out of chocolate chip cookie if you're not intimate with it because you can maintain this fantasy that it's got a lot more pleasure in it. And that's just a chocolate chip cookie, let alone some great pleasure that you anticipate. It's another way of approaching life. It's another way to come at life. And you end up coming at it less habitually. There's more of a wisdom, and that's, that's not a habit. It's just clear seeing. You don't develop a habit around it. You just live with clear perspective. And you don't make as much frustration for yourself. And it's born out of intimacy. So when I was younger, I was a scientist, I was a physicist. I still have that ethos in me. My parents are scientists. Um, what I've found in this tradition, which I like about it, is that there's no unquestionable belief I have to take on. It's just trained me into greater intimacy so that I can actually understand the world better than I had. And I, I have not come to belief systems. I've come to understandings. And those understandings help me navigate the real world much better than I did when I was younger.